Let me tell you today about Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, or you can record it on another device or platform and transfer it to Anchor. It will distribute your podcast for you through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast right in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I mean, this is good conversation if we want to put it on the intro. Yeah, this is actually yeah, this is good conversation. <laughs> Welcome in to the Triple Play Fantasy Baseball Show. Happy to see my friends and my family. Happy to all the listeners for coming in and listening to another episode. Art Torna Benny, how you doing, man? I, I'm doing pretty good. I am. Uh, I'm. I'm getting a little bit uh, crazy again. It's going ebbs and flows. This at-home stuff. Like I'm going like super high. Oh, I'm time i love this then i'm like i need to get out of here but uh i'm in an i'm in an i need to get out of here every once in a while phase but i'm doing great otherwise <laughs> i like the, is that like the little voice in your head yeah that's the voice in my head is a real high pitch i guess <laughs> <laughs> eric my man how's it going it's going well i'm the same as art but like the the lesser highs and the lesser lows yeah, that's, that's, you're very boring. That's why you always go second. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm willing to admit that, or I just don't care about putting my information on the podcast. Well, I am going to put one little information. Happy birthday to, to Papa Mendelssohn, the father of uh, Eric and myself. His birthday is today. We're recording this on Tuesday, so um, just wanted to shout out to Pops, who's who's an avid listener of the pod. We appreciate you listening. We love you, man. Happy birthday, John. <laughs> Uh, with that being said, let's get in some uh, of our news and notes. All right, so unless you've been living under a rock, you know that Major League Baseball owners approved a proposal from Commissioner Rob Manfred uh, that he plans to present to the players uh, today. So the, it was presented. There are some hoops that they're going to have to jump through, but it looks like that there's a chance things can happen. However, there is a chance things could get ugly, and there could be actually a, uh, a pretty much just a, a fight between the owners and the players. So some things that are outlined in this return-to-play proposal, just a quick little summary. The 50-50 split of revenue. 82-game schedule. 82-game schedule is one of the big things that's noted from this. A mid-June spring training with an early July opening. A 14-team postseason rather than the typical 10. Games in home stadiums will be allowed. And then one of the last things I want to touch on is designated hitters will be allowed in the American and the National League. Um, If you want to read everything that's going to be coming in, please read the article by Jeff Passan, 20 Questions. for the upcoming baseball season. Uh, it's on ESPN. It's a great article. So touching on the designated hitter portion, Eric, do you feel that there are going to be some particular players that are going to benefit from this? 
Well, first of all, call me Patrick Starr because I didn't know that. So I guess I'm living under a rock. Um, but I think there's two types of players that are going to greatly benefit. First is uh, ALDHs such as Nelson Cruz and Chris Davis. Uh, I think, obviously, they play in the American League, so uh, they have the DH benefit the majority of the time. But now, if they were to play interleague games, uh, they're going to be uh, in the lineup more. And the second is for people that are kind of in platoon situations. So I'm thinking of Atlanta with Johan Camargo and Austin Riley. If you were to have the pitcher batting, uh, that would probably take away one of the, the spots that the other would go in. So I think without the pitcher spot there, um, you know, both both of those people are going to see an increase in playing time. Interesting. Art, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I love that thought about the ALDHs. That wasn't something that I had considered before, but it really is going to up the value of those ALDHs. They're not going to be uh, sitting out, I don't know, a fifth or so of the games that are interleague games. I'm not sure how many, exactly how many. I think that is going to up their value. It's going to make them more valuable in the draft. But I, I looked at NL players, and I, I thought of uh, five who uh, just – that I thought are going to become more draftable. Uh, Aristides Aquino, Jock Peterson, Matt Carpenter, Kevin Crone, Steven Souza were the five that I looked at. I thought those guys are going to go up, but I think the one and it's uh, the most dramatic rise is going to be actually Matt Carpenter because when he moved to third base, when Paul Goldschmidt went to came to St. Louis and took over his first base, his fielding at third base, I think, affected his hitting. And uh, now I think they can take him out of there, stick him at DH, and just keep his bat in the lineup. I think he still has some left. A lot of, you know, there's, there is some debate in whether or not he still has, he's lost some bat speed. But I think two seasons ago, you saw him crank out his best season of his career power wise. And uh, there's no reason that last season, when the ball inflated, uh, the ball inflated home run numbers for everybody, he just, took a dive off a cliff um so matt carpenter is a guy who i think was completely undraftable before now he's a late round flyer who i might uh, who i might uh, take a chance on one last thought i had do you guys think that the milwaukee brewers hitters uh ryan braun avisiel garcia some of the guys that they had that might have platooned do you see any of their values being raised from this or are they someone that you might dra- consider drafting now yeah i do think they're late round flyers uh you know, maybe not as much Ryan Braun. I think he's kind of on the decline of his career. Um, and, and I think durability is a concern where um, in, and staying healthy. But I think someone like a VCL Garcia, um, especially in a lineup like that, uh, has a very good chance of producing. Yeah, I'd look at like Avisel Garcia and Ryan Braun. I didn't know who was going to be the starter because I, I was looking at their roster. They have about four starting outfielders right now. I was also looking at like Philadelphia has Jay Bruce. So they have about four starting outfielders, no center fielders, really. Um, it's, it's hard to predict. Uh, I think Atlanta has four starting outfielders as well. Um, it, it's hard to predict who exactly is going to take this DH spot or how they're going to run it, which is why I picked the ones that I did. Cause I thought that, you know, they, they look like they were obviously, I thought obviously Al Garcia had some draft value before. So did Jay Bruce, but, um, uh, but the ones I did, I thought may had big bumps from it, but I think all of those like Braun Garcia, Jay Bruce, they all get a small bump at least from this DH. 
I like that analysis from you guys. Um, well, we're not going to hold up any longer. We had a special guest uh, that we just interviewed. We had a blast talking to him, Steve Sparks. Uh, Sparky, as a lot of the people in Houston call him, uh, great guy. And just uh, we had, a, again, we, we had an absolute blast talking to him. We kind of get into a little bit, not just of his career, but we talk about his kind of looking at the Astros right now um, since he's able to kind of work right up close and personal with them. So we hope you guys enjoy the interview with Steve Sparks. Make sure, again, if you're not following us on Twitter or you're not subscribed to our Apple Podcasts or Spotify that you hop on the train. We've got more great guests coming. We've got more great fantasy content coming. Is there anything I left out, guys? Do you want to say anything to the people before we get to our interview? Uh, yeah, Jeff McNeil, you tweeted something out about the New York Post, um, potential controversy, controversial article about you. Um, I'm on your side. Don't worry. Uh, you know who won't say anything controversial about you is the Triple Play fo- Podcast. We only say positive things about Jeff McNeil. We love you. You want a forum to respond to the failing New York Post <laughs> where are your forum <laughs> i love all these voices that art has i didn't know he had i you know i got i got a three-year-old who wants me to do voices for every character in one of his children's books i'm getting a little bit better <laughs> <laughs> oh man. well everybody we appreciate you listening please again make sure to uh to follow us to give us reviews And uh, if you're liking the content, let us know. And we will catch you guys next week. We hope you enjoy our interview with Steve Sparks. We welcome in Sparky, Steve Sparks, former major league player in the bigs for 10 seasons. Steve is a two-time 200-innings pitched pitcher, a former 14-game winner, and a knuckleball extraordinaire. Steve pitched in the Vicks for five different organizations and was with seven total organizations, uh, including the minor leagues during his career. So now Steve is the color analyst for the Houston Astros radio broadcast. <coughs> and some fun facts about Steve. He actually pitched until he was 40, and he once dislocated his shoulder. Ripping <laughs> the book in half. You knew I was going to leave off with that. You have to. <laughs> How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me in, guys. Uh, it, it's great to join you guys, uh, talking baseball, trying to entertain some people. This is what it's all about. For sure. Uh, so right off the bat, can you tell us about this zone phone book story? It, it's, it seems like it's so infamous. I can. Yeah. You know, it's what I'm known for. There's no doubt about that. So uh, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, and we'll see where it lands. But uh, I, I was a, a, a longtime minor league pitcher. And the reason for that mostly was because I kind of reinvented myself. I was a conventional pitcher. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers, the team I was with at the time, asked me to become a knuckleball pitcher because it didn't look like I was going to get to the big leagues the other way. So I kind of started over. I went back to A ball and worked my way back up. So after eight years in the minor leagues, I got my first invitation to, to Major League Spring Training Camp. And you can imagine I was 30 years old. Um, a lot of the guys that were in camp were my buddies from the minor leagues that just zoomed right by me. But there was also Robin Yount and Paul Molitor and guys like that. So I was in awe, of course. But 
Uh, our general manager at the time was a, a man named Sal Bando, a former great player with Oakland A's and a couple of other teams. And also our manager was Phil Garner, who a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but uh, they had invited this group to our spring training one morning. Just to, It was kind of entertainment, but it was also uh, a motivational group. And you've seen them before. It's like the power, the power teams that motivate people on stage, and they do this the feats of strength, you know, and they'll blow up the hot water bottles, they'll explode, they'll bend uh, bars of steel with their teeth. And one of the other things they did, that they, they would tear phone books, big phone books, and they would tear them in half. You know, it, it looked like it was a feather, how easily they did it. So this is what actually happened. I'll tell you what actually happened, and, and I'll tell you how what the story came out. So the next day we had a rain delay in Chandler, Arizona at our complex. And myself, a guy named Jesse Orozco, and another pitcher named Mike Fetters, longtime relievers, we were sitting around talking in the clubhouse about those guys who had come in the day before. Uh, their names were Radical Reality, by the way. And we were talking about how funny it was and, and how entertaining it was. And we all got a kick out of it. We all, we all were still talking about it. And we were talking about the phone books. And we were wondering if there was a trick to it. Well, Back in those days in our clubhouse, there was still pay phones and there was a pay phone and there happened to be some phone books beneath uh, the pay phone in our clubhouse. So we picked them up and we just wanted to see if there was a trick to it. So all three of us had one. We had we had the yellow, pay, the Phoenix yellow pages. They were thick and we were trying to we couldn't even budge them, not even a chance. So we were still talking, just BSing about something. So I started to cheat and I started to do a few pages at a time, kind of behind they're back. You know, I didn't want them to see it, but I was messing with those pages. And then lo and behold, uh, I got to a point where I could actually rip it. It, it. it made some movement. So I stood up. I said, you know what? I'm going to try this now. <laughs> and, and I started I started to rip it. And they were they were getting a kick out of it. They saw the, the pages start to rip. So I started to ham it, ham it up a little bit more. And more of the players started to gather around me. And they were chanting my name, Sparky. Sparky, and I was ripping it. I was two thirds of the way done, and I dislocate my left shoulder. Oh man! So let, let me preface this by saying it's the sixth time at this point that I dislocated that shoulder, and once it's out, uh, the first time it becomes more susceptible to dislocating. And my left shoulder is my non-throwing shoulder. But the story came out that I was this longtime minor leaguer who got so motivated by these guys that I jumped up on stage with them and I tried to do what they were doing and I dislocated my throwing shoulder. Oh, so that's wow. the way the story came out on talk radio USA today. There was a great, there was a great, great quote in USA today was our trainer said, you know what? I, I, I kind of feel sorry for Sparky, but I was a little bit even more irked because I had a, a phone number to look up. You know, you know, there was just, <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff about it. So in the year 2000, you guys don't remember this, but they came out with a, a million list, the top 10 whatever, you know, uh, right at the end of this, this century. Uh, so as December was rolling along toward Y2K, they came out with all these lists. And when they came out with the stupidest sports injuries, I was number four. And literally, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating, there's three times a year since that injury that somebody does something stupid that a new list comes out 
and I vacillate between four and seven on every <laughs> single one of those lists. So it's been on the back of baseball cards, and obviously that, that was the beginning of my career. So anytime I ever pitched in a game, it was great fodder for, for broadcasters to talk about, especially you know visiting team broadcasters to talk about it because it's such a funny story. You know, Steve, if you ever play the game Never Have I Ever, if you use that, <laughs> you always get everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's out there. There's some funny There's some funny injuries, and one that I love to, to laugh about, but he denies it, and I think it's true. But John Smoltz denies that he got injured by ironing his shirt while he was wearing it. Oh, boy. Oh, man. <laughs> he went on the DL because he burned himself and missed a start. <laughs> Is that a bu- is that on one through three of any of the lists? Smoltz's? Yeah. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah, that that was that seems to be like uh in the top three quite a bit. There's a uh, Sammy Sosa sneezing and, and broke a rib. I remember that. Yeah, there's there's some uh, Marty Cardova of the Minnesota Twins burned the retinas in his eyes by not wearing goggles uh, in a tanning booth. Oh, my God. <laughs> it went on the disabled list. How crazy oh is God. that? But I went on. So I went on to dislocate that, that shoulder 15 times. The first time was in a brawl in the minor leagues, and I tackled a guy with my left shoulder, <laughs> and it just went on and on. There was some other ones, uh, but 15 times, and I ended up having three reconstructions on it. And finally, the first two reconstructions they did on that left shoulder, they put one plastic hook in there to keep it in place. On the third surgery, they put 11 in. So it, it hasn't come out since. That was 1997. Oh, man. Um, so, see, we, we definitely, um, we, you know, have kind of looked at your career in the major leagues. Uh, and I'm not going to lie. Eric and myself, uh, we're millennials. So we first came about knowing you uh we video like, games yes yes you already beat me to it and yeah we, we i hear this MVP. all the time <laughs> did, you, did you know that uh in mvp baseball 2005 they made you the slowest fastball pitcher in the game no is that right yeah so like they literally had your fastball going 65 miles an hour that's hilarious we so stole we a lot went, of bases off of you that's hilarious. You know, for, for whatever reason, I know I was a very subpar pitcher throughout my career, but I had a couple of decent years. But I will say that I've had a lot of people tell me for five or six innings in video games, whatever games that they were playing, that I was one of the better pitchers in video games, one of the hardest to hit. Oh, yeah, because you had the knuckleball, and we actually yeah. wanted to touch on that. So uh, I know, Art, you had a question specifically about the knuckleball. Um, oh, yeah, I do. Um, because I, when you talk about pitchers going from starting to relieving, I mean, broadcasters now talk, uh, analysts now talk about how pitchers can really amp up their velocity and rely mm-hmm. on their on their very best pitches, one or two pitches. Yeah. When a knuckleballer goes from starting to relieving, what is that transition <clears throat> like? Obviously, you're not really amping up your velocity how does how do you prepare yourself to become a reliever as a knuckleballer here's what i learned it took me two or three years to learn this now i'd never thrown a knuckleball when they when they'd asked me to to start throwing this so i started from square one and that was by looking at baseball cards and seeing where guys held it 
But uh, one thing I learned after two or three years was I could still throw my fastball in the upper 80s, 90 miles per hour. But, and I thought, you know what? When I throw my knuckleball and I throw that fastball, it's going to look a million to the hitters. When I throw a fastball 88 to 90 miles per hour, it's going to be a great contrast. But what I learned after a few years was it was really hard to go back and forth if, forth, if, I, if, I, was, if I was going to like that. It wasn't going to work, and it didn't work. And what it did was it alerted the hitters to a, another speed of a pitch. It, they, they could tell I was throwing the fastball. So if I kept my knuckleball mechanics and concentrated more on, on maybe a little subtle movement, a little cut to it, and really concentrated on location, it was much more effective. So I would back up my fastball to 78 to 80 miles per hour just so I could keep the same mechanics, keep a feel for my knuckleball, which is the pitch I wanted to throw 70 to 90 percent anyway, keep a feel for that pitch by not going back and forth with with different mechanics. So it took me a while to, to learn that. So the answer, the real answer to your question is I just had to I had to get I had to take the spin off the ball. You know, when I, I had a good knuckleball which it would come and go for sure. But when I had a good one, it didn't matter who was hitting. It really didn't. It didn't matter if it's Kirby Puckett or Dave Winfield. It didn't matter. Ken Griffey, Alex Rodriguez, I owned them when it was good. You know, so it was the one pitch that could neutralize their great eyesight and their great hand-eye coordination because they didn't know which way it was going. I didn't know which way it was going. The catcher didn't know. You know, nobody knew because it was all up to the – the pressure, the, the wind against the scenes, and it was going to dance and fall and, and go in some direction that nobody knew. So, Steve, so throwing the knuckleball, was there someone that specifically influenced you to start throwing it, or was it kind of your own decision and kind of did some background on it, and you kind of wanted to start incorporating that into your arsenal? It wasn't my decision, yeah. I mentioned it. I hadn't thrown it before. So I was – I think I was somebody that they liked and they didn't want to release and they wanted to give me another opportunity and I was stalling out at the double A level. Mm -hmm. But there was a couple of things looking back that worked in my favor. Number one is that I'm shorter in stature and that helps you stay behind the ball a little bit longer. So if you're shorter, that's why guys when they're throwing on flat ground have an easier time throwing good knuckleballs. You'll see infielders and even umpires throw a pretty good knuckleball. It's a lot easier on flat ground. When you're on a hill and you're trying to throw downhill, you end up rolling over with your hand because you're aiming more downward. And that's what makes it hard to take the spin off the ball. The other reason I think that I was a pretty good candidate to throw the pitch, and I learned this much later, and this is just uh, me just kind of inducing this on my own, is being around all of these knuckleball pitchers, Tom Candiotti, Phil Necro, Joe Necro, Charlie Huff, uh, R.A. Dickey, uh, Tim Wakefield, all of these guys had a very similar temperament about them. They were pretty relaxed. They were pretty chill. They weren't high anxiety or high, high strung, which I think those types of personalities play well to a relief pitcher. But I think for a knuckleball pitcher, you really have to relax to be able to throw a three one knuckleball with the bases loaded. You can't be tense at all. And I think that, when, when the Astros have asked me to take a look at a couple of guys down in their minor league system during spring training, 
that's the number one thing I look for. I can see when a guy's too high strung to throw that pitch. And I'll tell him, I said, long term, this guy's probably not going to get it. That's cool. Knuckleballers seem to have a fraternity. And- yep. There's no doubt. Yeah, nobody else knows what the other ones are going through like uh, the knuckleballers are. And, you know, uh, I remember th- this is a good example of just a conversation. I, I got a chance to talk to Charlie Huff one time um, early in, in my career. And he just said, hey, uh, my wife and I were watching you pitch the other night. And she said, it looks like uh, Steve is trying to throw the ball downhill. And if you know anything about pitching, I mean, that's that that was number one priority as a conventional pitcher. I was always trying to throw the ball downhill, get a really good, good angle on my pitches. This is before everybody's tried to start living up in the strike zone. And I said, well, yeah, I am. He says, you don't want to do that as a knuckleballer. You want to keep your palm behind the ball as long as you can. And by doing that, you have to aim for something much higher. And he said, I used to aim for the top of the catcher's mass. It had nothing to do. I aimed two and a half feet higher than probably it was even a strike. That way I could keep my hand behind the ball much longer and be much more consistent about taking the spin off of it. That's interesting. That's super cool. I, I, um, I, I was watching some clips and I noticed, uh, Brandon Inge would close his eyes when he was catching your knuckleball. Really? That's funny. <laughs> They'd slow and I was like, are his eyes closed? You know, I think Brandon Inge closed his eyes when he swung the bat too. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's one of the most freakish athletes I ever played with. Brandon, of course, played with the Tigers and uh, he caught when he first came up to the big leagues, ended up being a great third baseman. But he could stand still and throw a ball straight up in the air and hit the roof at the Metrodome in Minnesota, which uh, I, I would dare say, I don't think there was anybody else that could do that. He was just freaky like that. He could do weird stuff. He had once, I mean, he's had a one or at least one or two seasons where he hit 20 plus home, one, home runs in. Oh yeah, yeah, he was strong. Uh, he was a great athlete. Uh, he, he ended up having a really nice career for somebody who didn't end up sticking. You know what his biggest problem was? Uh, what was I think he had ADD. He had a hard time concentrating and he couldn't remember game plans, you know, to, to kind of execute uh, as far as calling pitches for pitchers. Cause we could have conversations in the dugout and he would forget it by the time that we would get out there. And it's just, just something he had to deal with moving to moving to third, moving to third base, to third base. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it, you just got to figure out what, what you're good at and a couple of things that Brandon wasn't good at. Uh, he was a great receiver as a catcher and had an unbelievable arm. But uh, one of the big parts about it was calling a good game and he just couldn't remember. So, so Steve, you're, you really know pitching. So I, this question, I'm, I'm curious, do you feel that today's game is so much focused on velocity and overpowering hitters rather than location or kind of the the art of pitching and, and knowing how to mm-hmm. locate. Do you feel that there's too much emphasis on just blowing guys away? I, I think it depends on the type of pitcher that you're 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 looking at. I, I can give you an example of Garrett Cole, who, who pitched with the Astros the last couple of years, who I got really close with and had a lot of fun conversations with, and would stand probably 15 feet away from Garrett almost every bullpen session he would have during spring training. So 
I would get to listen to a lot of the things he was working on. And one of the things was, is, you know, when I was pitching and a lot, you know, the guys that were my teammates, we were always taught to, to really sharp focus at something small, not just the catcher's glove or just to an area, to, but something even small on the catcher's glove and aim for that. And the premise was, is if you miss that by a little bit, you're still, you're still cooking with gas. You're still in business because you're still really, you're going to be uh, pretty close to the location you, you want. But with the, a lot of these guys, Verlander and Cole, and a lot of pitchers will learn with the, this uh, high-speed cameras, uh, the Rapsodo cameras, and, and everything that they've been able to use with, with TrackMan and all that was spin rate. Mm-hmm. And what they learned was if they didn't try to be too fine, they could really air it out. They could really accelerate and get more spin. So what Cole did, and I know Verlander does, is they pitched a quadrants. And it's a much broader area. But if you're thrown to a quadrant that's probably maybe two feet by two feet and you've got four of them, you know, up and into a lefty, up and away to a lefty, low and in and low and away. If you've got these quadrants, you're really going to rip it, whether it's a slider or a fastball. And they learned that their spin rates were getting a lot better because there was a lot more freedom in their delivery by letting it go like that. So I think when you're talking about guys that throw 95 plus, uh, I, I like them to air it out. You know, um, what they've learned, you know, through the numbers is when there's more strikeouts, you leave a lot less to chance. And when the guys don't put it in play, then there's there's no chance for, for it to uh, land where somebody's not positioned or for somebody to make an error or or even to hit the ball out of the ballpark. So swing and miss is a big thing. And I think to take advantage of a guy who can garner the swing and miss, I think you need to. Steve, I, you, you say uh, garner and you brought up Phil Garner before I, I yeah. was looking. I noticed that he was also your manager in Detroit after being a manager <laughs> in Milwaukee. Yeah. Is he the reason you went to Detroit? And uh, if so, uh, and if not, do you have any thoughts on Phil Garner? Got a lot of thoughts on Phil Garner. Um, he became kind of like my dad uh, as a, as a professional. Really, uh, he was my manager, as you said, in Milwaukee. I was in uh, spring training camp with Philadelphia uh, in 2000 and got released with a week left in spring training. And I called uh, I called Garner and he got me uh, a job to go to AAA with the with the Tigers. I ended up going. Uh, back up to the big leagues with Detroit about uh, halfway into the season. So uh spent a few, few, year, few years ago, 41 years old, taught me into coming to spring training with the uh, Astros. And I would say, you know, it, it came down to the last couple of days of spring training, and they asked me to go down to AAA. And as a 41-year-old, my kids were older. I was just going, I'm done. You know, and one of the things uh, that I take out of that, was some relationships that I made just from that invitation that uh, that he afforded me uh, to come uh, with the Astros that uh, landed me a job as a broadcaster. And I've been, you know, seven years as a pre and post game with television. Now this is my eighth year coming up full time with the radio doing every broadcast. So uh, probably because of that invitation, getting to know some people, uh, I've got a lot uh, of gratitude to Phil Garner. I like to mess with him. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story about Phil Garner. He called me one day. Uh, I was driving around town here in Houston, 
Uh, and this has been a while back. This is when Moneyball was out and he had just seen it at the theater. And he said there was one scene. He was laughing when he was getting into his car and he called me up right after the movie. He said there's a scene in Moneyball that reminded him of, of something uh, that was reminiscent of a situation that I was in. And he said there was a scene where the scouts were talking about a couple of players who were on the bubble to make the team. And uh, they were talking about one player who said, you know what? Uh, I just don't think he has confidence. Have, have you seen his wife? And they go, no. And they, they said, she's a dog. And, you know, <laughs> this guy's a major leaguer and his wife is, you know, I just don't think he has confidence. He said, uh, you know, have you, have you talked, have you seen so-and-so's wife? You know, and he and he told me, he said, he said, that is verbatim what happened to me. The reason why I made my first major league team with the Brewers, he said, because I had a hot wife. <laughs> <laughs> he said they went through that same conversation uh, in the clubhouse in uh, Arizona. And uh, I said, well, don't tell Michelle about that. So I, I still, you know, I'm looking over my shoulder right now. I hope she doesn't hear me because I don't want her to be able to hold that over my head. Um, <laughs> and she's the reason I made my first team. <laughs> I love that that's a criteria. Um, Steve, it sounds like the Astros have treated you really well and, you know, that they hold a, a, a special spot in your heart. Um, yeah. I do just want to ask you a quick question after everything that's gone on with this offseason. Sure. You look, you look at that roster in 2017. You know, Carlos Correa was the number one pick in the 2012 draft. Jose Altuve was a batting champ and silver slugger. George Springer, the 11th pick in the 2011 draft. Bregman, the number pick in the, the number two pick in the 2015 draft, uh, respected veterans such as Verlander and Beltran. These players have obviously worked their butts off to get to where they yeah. are. And yeah. on and on paper, we're probably one of the favorites to win it. Um, why do you think they did what they did? I think they just got caught up. You know, you know, when something uh, you, something starts to gain traction, um, and when you're winning. And the only the only thing I can kind of harken back to is having close to half of my teammates in, in you know, in particular times uh, on steroids, you know, and, and when you're winning, uh, it's hard to say something when you're in a clubhouse. And I never touched anything like that in my entire life. But I knew uh, some of my teammates that did. And why didn't I say something? Because it helped us win. You know, and when you're in that when you're in that mindset, you just you just kind of don't say anything. Do I wish I would have said something? I, I probably like if it was a really tight friend, you know, I would probably have a some type of conversations where we were probably talking about his health, long term health or something like that. But in a situation like the Astros were in, I think it just got out of hand. And that's the shame of it all. And I think that's what guys are probably most ashamed about and feel the the most sorrow is, as you mentioned, they probably were the favorites anyway. They were a great team and they had a great chance. Let's just say they had a great chance to win it all anyway, no matter, you know, what they were doing. So uh, it's unfortunate, you know, and it, it's affected not it's affected a lot of people's lives and that's very unfortunate. And I think that's what a lot of people feel sorry for and ashamed about. But when it goes down to it, I don't know if you guys are dads or not. Yeah. But good people, good people do bad things sometimes. That's just, you know, that's us too. You know, 
it's not to say that they're bad people. And, you know, a lot of people say they're sorry because they got caught. I understand that. But, uh, you know, sometimes people just do things that aren't right. That's all I can say about it. And I've, I've become very invested in a lot of these players that uh, have grown to like them a lot and uh, like their parents, you know, and I feel bad for their parents and their families too, but you know, things happen and uh, it's unfortunate. And all they can do now is go forward and try to do the right thing going forward. Um, Steve, I want to go back to the wife that got you your first job. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Speaking of 31 that wife, years I've been married. 31 years. Congrats. Thanks. Speaking of that wife, in December of 2019, you suffered a heart attack. And from yeah. what I read, it sounds like it kind of came out of nowhere in a sense. And can you just kind of describe to our listeners the sequence of how everything went down and how your wife uh, arguably probably saved your life? Yeah, she did. So it was December 11th. So it was five months and a day ago. Um, I had gone to hit some uh, golf balls at a country club for about 15 or 20 minutes, then went and worked out. And as I came outside after 45 minutes, it was cool outside. And I felt some coolness in my chest, in the middle of my chest, as I was walking to my car and just kind of credited the, the cold air. You know, sometimes you get that sensation in your chest from the cold air. But I noticed it. And my house was about 10 minutes away. And halfway home, I started to get some achiness in my left shoulder. And it, it got my attention a, a little bit. And the reason it got my attention was because a really good friend of mine who's the uh, color analyst on radio for the Angels, Mark Langston, had had a heart attack right next to me at Minute Maid Park uh, a couple of months before. So it did cross my, my mind briefly. And then by the time I pulled in my driveway, I started to get nauseous. And when I came inside, I went into the bathroom. I threw up and I told my wife what had happened. And she was very adamant about let's go to the hospital. So I said, let me stretch. Let me just see if I can, you know, just kind of ease up. And, and she said, no, let's go. So we got to the hospital. And within one minute, uh, I started to feel curtains come down. And I got her attention as she was trying to get people's attention uh, and told her I was going down. And I, I went out. So I, I died three times right there. Uh, they brought me back to life. I had 99% blockage in the uh, Widowmaker artery. So to say that uh, uh, she saved my life is an understatement. And she, she did. She had a nursing background and understood what was going on. But um, very lucky that, that we're talking right now. Um, so that, that, that was it. You know, and I've, I've got to say this for, for anybody who's listening. There's a simple test that you can do to, to check out uh, the calcium level in your blood. And that'll tell you whether or not uh, that you're a candidate to, to get that calcification and the plaque buildup. Uh, I had no prior symptoms, no shortness of breath, no high cholesterol, no high blood pressure. It was all uh, family history that I didn't know the extent of. So just kind of I'll kind of leave it at that. I don't, I don't want to have a PSA here about it or anything, but just if we can get somebody to go take a blood test that doesn't really know their family history, they notice that their calcium level is a little higher than it should be then maybe they'll, they'll get routine checkups that, that I didn't do. That, I, that's a really important message. And, and I think, I mean, even if it just saves one person's life, that's it's such yeah. a meaningful message. Yeah, and no Steve, doubt about it. you're doing well. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, uh, 
you know, I changed my diet a little bit, you know, um, and exercising six days a week, uh, you know, it, it, it changes your perspective for sure. Um, I wasn't as diligent as I should have been after my career, uh, as about, about getting physicals and things like that, or else I probably would have caught this a little earlier and not have to gum got through this or put my family through it. But, uh, you know, there's reasons for everything. And the reason might be just because you, you and I are having this conversation right now and somebody's going to listen to it and they may be spared. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much for that. It's yeah, great. sure. That's great. Um, so Steve, so now that you're back to being an ox, strong as an ox. That's right. If you were to go on that bump right now, what do you think you'd top out at? Uh, you know what? If you would have said this five or six years ago before my son went to college, I, was, I, I still probably could have topped out at 86, 87. Wow. Uh, I was still throwing some BP to the Astros whenever they were going to face Dickey or some of these knuckleballers. And my arm still felt great. But once he went to college, I wasn't throwing BP to him all the time or playing catch or coaching their teams and things like that. So – uh, when, when you're inactive with your arm, it's just like tendonitis almost sets in and, and it hurts. I will say this, and I hadn't played catching about two or three years to this point. There was a, there, there was a start last year uh, that Trevor Bauer made uh, at Minute Maid Park. And in my booth, I like to have both uh, bullpens, uh, a monitor of both bullpens so I can see who's warming up and kind of get ready for the next reliever who's going to come in. But Bauer was warming up before the game, and I was just kind of watching him. And I was watching the way he was taking the ball out of the glove, which was contrary to anything I was ever taught or learned or thought about how you take the ball out of the glove to get your hand in the right position. So I came home that night, and I was telling my son about it. My son uh, was over, and we were just kind of mimicking it just in, in our living room floor and he was just going, man, that feels a lot better on my shoulder. My shoulder doesn't pinch when I take the ball out of my glove that way. And I was doing the same thing. I said, that does feel a lot better. So the next morning we got up like at 730 in the morning out in the cul-de-sac in front of our house. We started playing catch. And I'm not kidding. I had one of the best knuckleballs of my life. I mean, he, could, he couldn't even catch them. They were hitting him all over his body just because of the way I was taking. I was taking the ball out of the glove like Bauer. And it was putting my hand in a perfect position. And I had a filthy knuckleball so uh, i don't know you know it's kind of funny bob melvin with the oakland a's their manager threw me a ball in the dugout last year at one point he said do you think you could throw a knuckleball at this and you know all the rumors about all the home runs and how hard the ball was i tried to dig my fingernails into the ball and i couldn't it's like a cue ball and i really don't think that a knuckleballer could really pitch right now if the ball was exactly like it was last year and there wasn't a knuckleballer last year stephen wright was hurt mm -hmm. but until the ball softens a little bit again, I don't think we're going to see another one. Wow. That's fascinating. So, um, I, I did want to, you know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, you, you didn't have a great career, you said, but you did lead the league in complete games in 2001. You also yeah. ended your season with a run of three complete games and four out of four starts. And the fourth start mm. was an eight inning game. Was that the best run of your career, you think? And did you were you mad the season had to end? Well, uh, it was 2001. So those last four games I pitched happened to be right after 9-11. Oh. Mm. oh wow. So yeah. it was 
I had pitched the night before 9-11. I remember pitching that game. And I remember going to Starbucks uh, the morning that uh, the planes went through uh, the buildings. And um, we were off for six or seven days. And then it came back. And I remember having a couple of conversations with guys. And we didn't feel right about playing, but we felt so in- insignificant. And I don't know if you remember a couple of the things that led up to that. But one thing that happened, I remember Jack Buck. Uh, who's a longtime Hall of Fame broadcaster with the St. Louis Cardinals. And you could tell he was very ill, but he stood at home plate with a microphone in front of the fans in St. Louis before the game. He said, should we be playing baseball? And I might be paraphrasing. And everybody in unison said yes. And I rem- it, it almost changed my perspective about everything. And it, it went, my perspective went from, man, what are we doing? I just want to be home. I want to be with my family and protect them because things were, we just didn't know what was going on to realizing that we were playing an important role in the healing process of, of America at that point. And I wanted to be a part of it. And I think mentally, I think some players went one direction and some went another one. And I it, uh, seeing George Bush, President Bush throw a perfect strike and Jack Buck making that that comment in front of the fans in St. Louis took me in that direction. That's awesome. That's great. Steve, I have a little bit of a random question for you. Um, do you like having a name with alliteration? Um, yeah, I think I do. Um, we were thinking about naming my son Spencer. And then when I put that together, I, I hated it. So <laughs> two letters, uh, of alliteration, I don't think it is good, but I think one I kind of like SS. Uh, I like that, and I've always liked my name. And it, that's funny. I, we we had the uh, conversation with our kids from from time to time whether or not they like their names. And my oldest daughter, uh, she said, "Well, people always mispronounce my name, and I'll tell you why in a second. And now, in the last five years, it's really gotten bad." And the reason is, is because my daughter's name is Alexa and everybody always called her Alexis. And then in the last five years, any times that somebody says her name, there's a speaker around, something <laughs> goes haywire. And still, I mean, even at our house, when, when my wife and I are talking about our oldest daughter, Alexa, uh, our, our stereo system kicks off. So, <laughs> so that's the reason she hates her name. But alliteration, uh, I don't mind if it's just one letter. So we're talking with former MLB player and current voice of the Astros radio, Steve Sparks. Uh, Steve, we're going to get you out of here on this. Uh, we like to kind of have fun here and play a, a game when we have a guest on. So okay. what I'd like you to do is I have 10 rapid fire questions here. All right. So okay. try not to spend more than like a second or two to think about it. There might there may okay. be uh, a couple that you might have to, but uh, just give the first answer that comes to your head. Okay. Okay. All right. Cool Ranch or Nacho Cheese Doritos? Cool Ranch. My man. Uh, French toast or pancakes? Pancakes. With vanilla. Oh. Now we're talking. It's got to have vanilla in there. You got good taste, man. Uh, <laughs> ninjas or pirates? Pirates. Hey, I, I got to tell you something. You know why pirates wear a patch? No. Why? Because when they go downstairs where it's dark, they can change their eye patch and see a lot better 
because their 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 one eye that was exposed is already already uh, used to the lighting. Oh my! God. Right? I thought you were going to tell a joke there. That's that's no, some real is, knowledge. Is that crazy? I just heard that recently. I had to share that. I'm that's gonna really wow cool. my. I'm gonna wow some people with that because that is pretty cool, actually. You learn yeah. something new every day. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. This next one: have Cheeto fingers or have a notable noticeable piece of broccoli in your teeth. I think you can hide the fingers much easier. And I naturally smile, so I'm going to say I'd rather have the Cheeto fingers. You can always wipe that off on your kid. That's true. <laughs> That's why we had kids. Um, is the hot dog a sandwich, yes or no? No, that's not a sandwich. Sandwich is flat. There you but go. It's between bread, isn't it? Sandwich is flat. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> All right. Would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? One horse-sized duck. I can always get a cheap shot in. That was always my theory in a brawl. <laughs> Don't tackle like with how your left shoulder. Hey, the other thing we always thought about in a brawl, like I always thought about who's the oldest coach on the other side. Like if Don Zimmer was over there, that was the guy I was going after. <laughs> Steve, I wish you played in today's. All right, uh, last four here. Would you rather be a tree or live in a tree for the rest of your life? I'd rather live in a tree. Yeah, you know, we we could uh, we could use Bluetooth and entertain ourselves, but being a tree, you're just so so sedentary, so you can't move. I don't like that. All right. Uh, would you rather have always have the urge to pee or never know when you're going to pee and it just comes out? <laughs> I'd, I'd rather it just came out. I hate the other. I hate the other feeling. <laughs> so you might have to walk just, around with like a diaper or something. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think we're I think we're all destined for a diaper at one point anyway. <laughs> all right. Would you rather wake up naked at work? Or wake yes. Up naked uh, my answer is A. My answer is A. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what was the other part? Wake up naked 20 miles from your house in the woods. Work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I want people day. to talk. I want people to talk about it. That <laughs> Astros broadcast will be really interesting. Then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. Would you rather win? $50,000 or have someone that you're friends with with $500,000 or someone on this podcast win $500,000? <laughs> I think I, I think I, I would rather somebody – man, I, I would love to gift it to somebody I know who needed it very badly. Does anybody really need $500,000 need Man, yeah, I'd love to spread that. I'd, I'd love, I'd love to spread it out. But uh, to be honest with you, I, I would rather uh, a friend of mine get five hundred thousand well, dollars. That way, they would have an, they would answer. have a, they would have an option to, to do good with it. Mm -hmm. I like good, that. I like that. Um, Fifty thousand is a lot of money. Don't, don't get me wrong, but it's not life changing like five hundred, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's a real. I mean, 
I think you're right. I mean, $50,000 for yourself, like $500,000 is a big sum of money. And I, I think that can do a lot of good. It's a life changer. Amazing. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, Steve, I know how valuable your time is. So I, I really want to thank you again for coming on here and, and chatting with us. We had a blast. Yeah, My pleasure. You. Great Steve, talking to you guys. Next you time you're to... in the Baltimore or D.C. area, uh, if you like beer, uh, we got you. There you go. Sounds good, man. I'll reach out. I love coming to Baltimore. I miss Joe Angel more than anything. That was my golf buddy. Oh, man. If, if you want to, um, do you do you remember like where what spots you went to in Baltimore? Like, did you go into like the uh, Federal Hill area, like the harbor, when you would like come travel for games here? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, trying to remember. I've got them in my notes in my phone, but there's two or three restaurants there that we love. Oh, there's a What's the real old place uh, that that has the uh, the crab cakes? Uh, it's in a real old district that's been around for a hundred years. Fadley's. I feel like, I feel like it's Fadley's. F-A-I-D-L-E-Y apostrophe S. Have you yeah. ever heard of that? I forgot what that district is called in there. It's really old. It's almost like a. Uh, How do you? It's like an indoor. It's like an indoor market. Fadley's, F-A-I-D-L-E-Y apostrophe S. That's the best crab cake I've ever had by far. Oh, Lexington Market. Yeah, Lexington Market. Yeah. It's only like five blocks from the ballpark. Yeah, it's on Packer Street. Okay, I know exactly where that is. Yeah. Uh, Okay, well, now I'm definitely going to have to check that out. You got to try this. You got to try this. It's unbelievable. Oh, and I've man. been to the I've been to the Babe Ruth Museum probably five times. I love that. Oh man, that's cool. Have um, you all been to that? I don't no. think I have. It's just a block from uh, Camden. Yeah, I I live a block from Camden, um, right near the B and O Railroad Museum. So. Oh yeah. You guys, you guys. I live in Frederick. I have an excuse. Oh you yeah. Guys, we're a baseball no, podcast. I'm... You haven't been to the Babe Ruth Museum. Well, you know, there's a, probably a lot of places in Houston that, that I haven't been to that people are going, uh, I've got to be like, you know what? I've never like taken a tour of NASA, which is just oh. outside the city, which I, I, I kind of kick myself for not doing, which is, I, everybody says is a blast, oh, yeah. but I just never done it. And I've been here 35 years. All right. Well, you know what? After this quarantine's over, Steve, you got to go to the NASA thing. And I'm going to do the tour of Steve Sparks. And I'm going to go get crab cakes at Fadley's. And I'm going to go it. to the Babe Ruth Museum. And yeah. All right, do it. be the Steve Sparks tour. There you go. Sounds good, man. Uh, you'll enjoy it. You'll have a good time. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Steve. And again, if, if you, you want to see more of Steve, you can follow him on Twitter uh, at SteveSparks37. And then hopefully this season – Sounds like baseball is really going to happen. You can hear him calling games on the radio for the Houston Astros. Thanks again so much, Steve. You you. got it, guys. Take care. Be safe. Thanks, Steve. You got it.